This is Dr. Charles Parker, and you're listening to Core Brain Journal. It's the place where I connect both fresh discoveries and interesting different perspectives from advanced mind science with the realities of real people and everyday life down on Main Street. Well, welcome board folks. Dr. Charles Parker here one more time. And we're going to be talking about something that no one of your, none of the listeners really has any appreciation of. It's a very mysterious, opaque, somewhat non-recognized problem that no one as a listener has ever heard of before. And that is, get what, get this, anger management. Yeah. I mean, don't we all wish we had a little shot at that when we were younger? I mean, there's not a single person here that's not going to be interested in this conversation with an esteemed authority, Dr. Bernard Golden, who has come to us to talk about his really cool strategies that work for anger management. Thank you so much, Bernie, for coming on board. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me, Chuck. That's great. We, We enjoy it. Now, I'm going to introduce Bernie to you a little bit, folks, so you can see how this guy, this guy is a street person and academic person all in one, which is our favorite kind of guest. He's the founder of Anger Management Education in Chicago. He's been a practicing psychologist for almost 40 years. He's a young guy. He has a clinical experience in a number of settings, including community mental health centers, inpatient psychiatric hospitals, private practice psychiatric groups, individual practice, and he had worked with children, teens, and adults. And on the academic side, he was an associate professor at the Illinois School of Professional Psychology in Chicago for, get this, 12 years prior to expanding his practice to full-time all the way back in 2002. So he is the author of Overcoming Destructive Anger, Strategies That Work, And from 2007, that was published just recently in 2016, to an earlier one, Unlock Your Creative Genius, 2007, and Healthy Anger, How to Help Children and Teens Manage Their Anger, that was published all the way back in 2002. So what you've got is a guy that's a published author, three really cool books. He's been all around the psychiatric community. And he has been on the academic side for 12 years. So this is going to be a very diverse and interesting conversation. And I am very much looking forward to it because, hey, folks, anything we can get to figure out how to manage the anger in this world and manage ourselves better in any kind of angry context, potentially angry context, it's going to be a good thing for us all. So, Bernie, tell us how you took the turn in your life. You had such a diverse experience, street working in this and that, community mental health centers. I mean, you've seen the good, the bad, and the ugly. So how did you then come up with, hey, I need to get further into this. I want to look further into it and come up with some ideas. So how did all that happen? Sure. Some of my getting more involved with anger came a little later in my clinical experience, but only in hindsight did I realize my roots, both professionally and uh, in growing up. So as a child, for example, I I observed the destructive aspect of anger between my parents. It wasn't so much directed at my brother and myself, but and they weren't rageaholics, but there was constant uh, bickering, needling, criticizing. And a lot of times that we spent together was preoccupied with that kind of tension. My mom had her anxiety and my dad had his depression. 
And as a child, and many times the child who becomes therapist, even then I wanted to help them with their feelings, mm -hmm. to help them become in a better mood. I guess primarily I wanted them to be more available for me, self-focused in its originally origin. But over time, it took me a long time to recognize that I couldn't change these people and I wasn't responsible for their moods. But I started developing a passion to help people develop healthy anger so that uh, it wouldn't destroy their relationships or distract from what their own goals are. I, as a child, I had my own anger, and part of it was about what I just said about my parents being less available. Didn't get involved in fights, although uh, just occasionally. Professionally, I worked in South Bronx as an elementary school teacher for six years, and I tell people I learned a lot about how to manage my own anger as well as, as, well as how to help the children deal with their anger. And then after that, I spent about 14 years in psychiatric inpatient settings, and I started putting together classes, psychoeducation. One was on anxiety, one was on depression, and one was on anger. And uh, I decided I need to focus more in the area of anger and anger management. Well, you know, it's an interesting thing as you talk about it, because in a way, as ubiquitous as it is, and that's what I was kind of sarcastically doing in the intro, because look, we all have different kinds of anger experiences. And I'd say everybody, I don't like categorical thinking, so all is a poor word, but so many of us do have anger issues from time to time. And, and one of the things that's not really looked at carefully is anger management in the context of a whole host of uh, circumstances of psychiatric treatment. Now, what's happening, as you well know, individuals more frequently are saying, Oh, anger's the problem. Put them in an anger management class. Now, that's happening more in a more contemporary way. But I think still very often it's looked aside. The people don't actually think, okay, we're going to do something with that. We're not going to have a structure for it. We're just going to you know, kind of somehow retrain them. So this is why we're looking forward so much to talking to you. And so, so then you developed a specific set of criteria for assessing when it's counterproductive or how did you... How did you begin that whole flow of identifying the problem? Right. I saw that anger, when it's destructive, can lead to a whole host of problems, loss of job, loss of relationship, conflict in relationships, could lead to heart problems, uh, health problems, including cardiac incidents, a lot of accidents. I've seen some studies where about 14 to 21% in ER rooms are related to accidents that were related to anger. anger mm -hmm can lead to and interfere with career, career goals, loss of freedom, ultimately, if someone is jailed for the anger that becomes aggression. And mm -hmm. so I started over time identifying a term that I call healthy anger. And by healthy anger, I mean developing the ability to pause and reflect on what's going on in my body right now, what's going on, what feelings am I really experiencing behind my anger, what is a key desire that I'm feeling, feeling threatened right now? A key desire for safety, for connection, for trust, for a sense of empowerment. Healthy anger also involves, again, that pause to use anger as a signal to do this kind of reflection before one acts on the anger. It also involves the learning skills to let go of anger. Well, you know, I never had actually, in fact, when you said it, I almost stopped you, but you were on a nice little roll there. But I hadn't really even thought of anger in a healthy way. And, and what you're saying is 
I'm paraphrasing for you. Please correct me if I'm wrong. But it sounds like anger can be used constructively is what you're saying. If you really manage it correctly and that you can actually learn from the experience and grow from the experience and use it productively rather than have it turn your life inside out. Anger could be a very powerful motivator to help us meet and satisfy our desires. So we join political movements, and if they're managed in constructive ways, it's a a great outlet for anger. Anger could be motivating to uh, reach goals, both career and career, as well as uh, in relationships. Some people, unfortunately, say, I can only say what I really think when I'm angry enough. And so sometimes, uh, in that sense, one hand is healthy, on the other hand, maybe it would be helpful to develop the freedom to be assertive and say what you're feeling before it escalates to anger. This is where they need to talk to Dr. Golden. Absolutely. They're either inside or totally outside. They don't have it modulated at all. They're just either in or out. They're unzipped or they're zipped. (laughs) Not good. Not good. So then let's talk about your book, Overcoming Destructive Anger. So Let's talk, and obviously you're not going to be able to tell us the entire book, but if you could give us some kind of an idea of how a person can then constructively approach a problem that they may be angry in, what can they do about a repetitive pattern of anger? Let's start looking at the structure of that, if we can, please. Sure. I emphasize that that anger is on a continuum, and a person could be sitting still and quiet, but still feel the anger inside. Uh, All too often, if we use the word anger, people think immediately of aggression and violence, acting out the anger, doing something harmful about the anger. And so I help people on one hand, not only learn ways to uh, manage that behavior, and some people don't want to go further. They just want to manage the behavior. and That's a great goal. On the other hand, anger is a signal that gives us information if we stop and evaluate what's going on in me that leads to my anger. So I've developed an anger log. And Uh in using the anger log, I ask uh, individuals, I ask the reader to kind of put the incident on an imaginary video and backtrack very briefly identifying the trigger, the level of anger from one to 10, and then rewind. What were the feelings they experienced before anger? And that's a challenge because so many of us can't identify our feelings. We may say it in global terms, I felt good or bad or angry, but being able to identify the specific feeling, that alone in research has shown, you could label your feelings, I'm feeling hurt, I'm feeling ignored. I'm feeling powerless. Maybe I'm feeling inadequate or even self-doubt. That alone begins the process of better knowing what's going on in me that pushes me into anger. In the log, I help people identify what knee-jerk conclusion did you make about the triggering event? Did you jump to conclusion? Did you over-personalize something that happened? And key also is recognizing the expectations. Often we behave in ways without being aware of the expectations we hold And sometimes they're completely unrealistic. And I give a simple example that many of our unrealistic expectations are completely wishes or hopes rather than being realistic. We may drive down the road and someone (laughs) cuts us off and we get angry at them, let's say. Uh, Then if we're asked what percentage of drivers are driving with caution and consideration, we say, oh, very small percentage. So we know realistically about what to expect but the emotional mind wants to have everyone driving with caution 
a consideration. I had a client who was angry at his wife for being late 30, 40 minutes for every occasion, whether it was a wedding or going to a movie. And he was angry about that. And he said, how long is that <laughs> going on? Oh, well, we're married 15 years. So his expectation that she'd be on time is unrealistic based <laughs> on the history. I informed him that that doesn't mean that he'll never get her to uh, come on time, but he clearly hasn't identified the workable way of responding to her. Quite so. so, quite so. You know, I was thinking while you were talking, pardon me for coughing all over that excellent line of thinking, but just to mention, now that you mention it, I look my own evaluation process before listening to you and thinking about this is in my office, I break anger down into four subtypes, internal anger and nonverbal anger, which is where a person's carrying it inside. Internal is they're feeling that way, just they're not going to express it. And nonverbal is it's starting to be seen, but they're still trying to keep from expressing it. And nonverbal and internal are both, I see them related directly to underlying feelings of vulnerability directly. Now, the bottom line is then the other two forms of anger are really related to more dopaminergic effects, which have to do with executive function. And that is expressing it inappropriately verbally and expressing it inappropriately physically, not using proper judgment. So all four have an underlying sense of vulnerability associated with them. But what happens is that it's, this is my thought. I'm actually asking you what your thoughts are about this. It's you and I haven't discussed this before, but I think, you know, how often do I get a chance to talk to an expert? I get a chance to learn from you. You know, that's what we do. So what I see is that anger that comes out both verbally and physically is a self-management issue. So frequently expressed, like being late on a regular basis, is no, the prefrontal cortex isn't working right. And then huffing, puffing, keep it inside and nonverbal and just interior carrying resentment for years is so much more serotonergic. Now, they both, you could say, I'm not trying to preempt you, I'm interested in your feedback, but that it's all serotonergic, and I think there's a certain measure of truth in that. But I think the issue of the behavioral expression of it then has additional implications that wind up being counterproductive in a person's life. So what do you think about what I'm talking about? Is this, I mean, you're not used to thinking pharmacologically about these things, but, but what do you think? Not too often, but I do emphasize that so mm -hmm. much of anger management is an ongoing, uh, well, a conflict or a battle between the emotional brain slash mind and the rational brain slash mind. Yeah, yeah. That's any strategy talking. that helps with managing anger is one that's going to affect the physiology in our system, one direction or another. Mm -hmm. I use one example uh, back into driving in the highway. I tell people if you're angry with someone, picture them as a five-year-old with the same adult head, the other driver picturing mm -hmm way. And I say, if you get a smirk on your face, that already changes your physiology to go in a different direction than the initial mm -hmm. knee jerk of anger. And they, don't, they can't exist at the same moment. So it can derail that, that physiological effect on our and more intense anger arousal. Now, Bernie, I like the way you said that because that is so true. I mean, what you said is the interface between the affect and cognition has a lot to do with with really how they express themselves and their self-management, whether they're dealing with things constructively or not. Yeah. And so then what you said to follow that up is that if they can actually change their perception, and this is of what it is, and reconfigure it in some way, that it diffuses the intensity. Is that right? Yes, exactly. And I also emphasize when I have people attend my classes, 
it's called anger management, but it really is about managing emotions, period. And big magic part of this is learning emotional, increasing our emotional intelligence. It's about being able to sit with uncomfortable vulnerabilities, as you just described, being able to sit with that kind of tension that's kind of flowing in your body without feeling, I need to discharge and distract myself from that tension because it's so painful. So true. That's so true. Now, you then, have you put this in, in your book? Because you're doing anger management all the time, do you have a, a program that people take or do you have a, a system by which people can do it? We're talking about sort of little snapshots of what, do you have a, a process that might be helpful for people? Right. In my book, I mentioned this anger log. And so I have people repeatedly log an incident and uh, some people don't want to write it. And I emphasize Writing is to help you not only understand a triggering event and your reactions to one event, but it prepares you, helps you become more aware and mindful for the next event. And the more you do it, then in real time, you can identify, oh, I am feeling ignored. I am feeling uh, criticized. I'm feeling powerless. Without that practice with the log, it's hard to identify in real time what, what you're experiencing. Pardon me. Yes. In fact, what happens there... That's where the reflex comes because they don't have the appreciation of what's actually going on. They're just, they're exactly, they're just unzipping on a regular basis. And exactly. I combine that with uh, physical relaxation exercises that people I end up emphasizing to rehearse and you need to rehearse them repeatedly. So, you know, what is my body feeling like when it's tense and what is it feeling when it's relaxed? All too often I'll ask someone, what happens in your body when you're angry? Oh, I want to hit someone. No, let's back up. What are you experiencing in your body? And some people who have anger can identify that their heart is racing or they're feeling pressure in their chest. They're so busy with anger, which leads us to focus on the person or the situation. And so part of uh, the approach I have in, in addition to the logging is practicing mindfulness, whether formal mindfulness or excuse me, formal mindful meditation, or becoming more mindful. Mindful meditation helps us become more aware of where am I focusing my attention and paying attention to the details of what I'm observing. So being mindful of what's going on in my body, what am I experiencing emotionally, and what are my thoughts? What kind of knee-jerk thoughts am I having? And what are my expectations? That's mindfulness to our interior space, so to speak. You know, I think that's true about meditation and to just say it slightly differently because many of our listeners are really quasi-neuroscience experts. They're really here looking for answers. They study, they look on the internet, they think about these different things. And I think it's so important to think about how meditation does fit in with this now that you mentioned it. I, I, I didn't know if, we, if that was part of your program or not, but I think it's such an relevant piece. It's a very powerful component. And I have to say that over the years, I've written a number of books. And before those three, I, I've written some others on bipolar disorder. And I remember starting off with a couple of paragraphs in mindful meditation. Then in the next book, more pages. And then in the next, a chapter. <laughs> and I'm kind of glad that I didn't do my adult version anger until now, because I've really incorporated mindfulness in my practice uh, and both personally. And I see it as a very powerful strategy. It's not for everyone. And uh, it takes practice and, and sufficient comfort to even be able to uh, uh, 
uh, just sit for a couple of minutes and watch your breath without grading yourself on how you're doing it. Observe what's going on, your thoughts, and the ability to be able to have thoughts and feelings and to say, "Mm, which ones do I really need to pay attention to and which aren't that constructive? They're not constructive for me or for other people. Yeah, meditation has a, uh, and this isn't too deep for this august audience, meditation has a transcendent quality to it, a transcendent objective, if you will, in the sense that a person then is somehow separated from reality in a more constructive way rather than in a reptilian response. You know, Daniel Kahneman, one of my favorite authors, talking about thinking fast and slow. I don't know if you're familiar with that book, but you, you would love right. it. He's, he's, on the, he's on the whole reptilian thing, you know. And anger is reptilian because what happens, let me put it this, not healthy anger is reptilian, to use your phrase. And what happens is the person is just reflexively going, you know, zooming into hitting th- something and they don't really think about it. And what meditation does, it puts a human being in a transcendent mode so that they're not reacting so frivolously to changing reality. Changing reality is our biggest handicap. We as human beings are the animals on the earth that are better than any other animal on the earth at handling changing reality, period. We wouldn't have cell phones and cars and heat and AC and communication. But the problem is where we don't handle it. So a person can say, hey, I'm doing it 90% right, but I got this 10% problem. Well, 10% is your problem. <laughs> and so then I look at I I look at it as percentages, you know, because I'm not giving you a label and telling you you're all screwed up. I'm just like, you have a bad 10%, buddy. And and this is this is something you need to pay attention to. And transcendence would help you. And a lot of these people are very bright. They want to do something different. And meditation is an exceedingly important point. Let me ask you this question apropos of what we're talking about here. Do you have a specific plan on meditation that you recommend? I recommend it to many people beginning anywhere. <laughs> and I, for example, I'll recommend some of the apps where it's 10 minutes sitting uh, with one and Headspace, Budify, Calm.com, just for them to get a feel of an understanding of what types of meditation are available. So that's a a starting point. I, over time, have found myself more comfortable just doing a a non-guided meditation. I just want to sit. (laughs) But it's up to the individual. and uh, That's good advice. To find out uh, which one works best. And also a variety. I find a lot of people need variety to get a little more uh, committed to it. Yeah, because they can see the dimensions of it. Yeah, I did Zen meditation for a long period of time, and then I wound up, ultimately, my wife and I went to a conference in Chicago where they were talking about guided imagery. And guided imagery was very, very useful because then you it's a different type of meditation, and you take yourself to a different place and, you know, it's, it's a more, um, sort of, if you will forgive the expression, mentally aggressive meditative experience, but it nevertheless is transcendent because you're moving away from and you're asking questions and thinking about this relationship with this other part of yourself in some constructive way, your inner advisor. I don't know, have you ever done guided imagery? I've done guided imagery, for example, even in the 70s. I, I attended a workshop. Her name was Beata Jenks, and she did a lot of guided imagery dealing with health, dealing with breathing, picturing mm-hmm. green uh, 
the air being green, healthy, the air, you exhale and it's, it's red. Oh, yeah. uh, all the venom is being eliminated. <laughs> Guided imagery in the sense of uh, people get in touch. Also, I do work with the, the compassion itself. So having a person picture themselves being compassionate to someone else and then directing it at themselves is a big part of what I present in the book as well. Oh, that sounds very um, interesting. I do guided imagery to help people get more, to get more in touch with uh, the peaceful place. Uh, years ago, I started with guided imagery to help people relax. And I soon realized that not everyone is comfortable in a park or a beach. They've had some trauma there. Oh, yeah. And so uh, I tend to give open-ended guided imagery, focusing on the senses. Pick a place that's peaceful, a place you feel relaxed. And now notice the color, the shapes of the objects, the curves, the textures, the sounds or silence, uh, the air against your face. So I make it more open-ended. And over the years, uh, I found that that can be very helpful. So I do incorporate a lot of guided imagery in, in the practice as well. Now, Bernie, when you're working with an individual, uh, do you work individually with specific clients? Yes, I do. I do a lot of work with individuals. Many referred on their own, some court referred, some uh, company referred, a lot uh, boyfriend, girlfriend, spouse referred, so mm -hmm. yes. Mm -hmm. Now, do you do it virtually as well, or do you do it only in your office in Chicago? Only in my office. When you do work with an individual. Sometimes I think about. I don't know if you could do it virtually. I, that's why I was asking, because I'm trying to think about how it would work. I think coaching can be done virtually. I don't know if anger management could. I think, you know, like we're, you and I are able to see each other. We're here on Zoom. We have a relationship, even though you're miles away. I'm getting to know you as a person. I think we could actually, and this is helpful for me personally, and I appreciate it. But I'm back to the thing of you with a client. I'm thinking about what would be your experience? I think our listeners would be very interested in this question, as I would. What would be your most challenging difficulty with a client regarding how they actually handle their man, man uh, so they've come to you and they're broken through denial they know they have a problem i would think denial would be the first problem that's the big one but then the next step is okay you know i'm hurting my girlfriend and i don't want to hurt her anymore what would you say would be the next level of impasse that you see most provocatively and uh, continuously I find that the major challenge, major impasse, is helping those individuals begin to look at the pain they're experiencing. That's easier to, on one hand, a challenge, but the next step is evoking and developing some self-compassion toward themselves. Self-compassion uh, can be very uncomfortable for a lot of people. They don't want to accept it. They don't want to uh, acknowledge they even need it. And Chris Germer mentions this in his book where he calls it the backdraft. With self-compassion, you're opening your heart to compassion, but you're opening your heart. And that involves revisiting some pain, revisiting shame, perhaps, that underlies a lot of anger. I have encouraged many clients to identify specific experiences that they have shame about they have crystallized shame about that leads to some of their anger and helping them move towards self-forgiveness all mourning, mourning and grieving that they had anger or that they had no control over a situation. So mourning and grieving for the own, their own pain that they had at an earlier time. Very interesting answers. You know what I'm thinking about while you're saying that, 
the theme while you were talking sounds like your challenge is, I hadn't really thought about this until you answered the question, but is then the next thing is dealing with their underlying vulnerability and how they're handling themselves in their underlying vulnerability. I mean, in a way, it's a commonsensical answer, but you, know, you have to really know that that is an important step. If you don't know that step, then you're kind of in the mists of time. I say that every moment we're engaged in anger, it's a distraction from experiencing the raw thing of some suffering, some underlying suffering. And uh, that's hard to look at at times. That is a heck of a good point. That is a heck of a good point because I think that's so true. Uh, we see public figures who are in pain and obviously in pain who are angry all the time, and yet they're not going to deal with it. They're in the pervasive, profound denial. You know, it's, it's an amazing situation, totally amazing situation. In terms of anger, I've also conceptualized anger as starting out from a, uh, a cry for help, just like an infant, and that it's a cry for compassion. And uh, I say that destructive anger is self-compassion gone awry. And if it's healthy, it's, it's healthy compassion, meaning I'm hurting. How can I address my hurt in a yeah. constructive way? And anger, especially when it's destructive, reduces the likelihood that our key desires are going to be satisfied. Yeah, to paraphrase what you said, I think anger so often is, uh, and guys don't want to hear this, but I'll mess with them a little bit when I'm talking with right. them. And I say, look, a person could perceive you as whining here. They don't want to think of themselves as a whiner. But when you say that, then that drives, a, it's like a dog on Dracula stick in your heart, you know? <laughs> you know, like me whining, not me. I'll tell you a funny story you get a kick out is I was working you know, I wrote a book a long time ago called uh, Deep Recovery, How to Use Your Most Difficult Relationships to Find Out Who You Are. That was back in 92. And I was dealing with drug addicts and alcoholics. And in those days, everybody was talking about codependency, codependent this, codependent that. Right. And of mm -hmm. course, it was a misnomer because if you were a wife who was married to an alcoholic, he was dependent on alcohol and you were codependent on alcohol with him. And my aversion to that. Of course, I was a trained psychoanalyst when I was doing this. I was like, no, you're just plain old dependent yourself, period. You're not codependent on alcohol. You're dependent on him. So then, you know, this whole codependency thing came up and I was running a, a treatment center for drug addicts and alcoholics. It was my beginning awareness of the pervasive problems with substance abuse back in the early 90s. And I get a heroin addict come in who was arrested on a three-state heroin operation. They arrested him in New Jersey, taking a kilo of heroin, New York or something like that. And he's down there in our center. And I said, you know, the problem for you, buddy, is you yourself are codependent. And he's, he's a nasty street guy. But I'm telling yeah. him in a way that's constructive. He's like, I said, look, you have some underlying vulnerability. And look who's going to get the Mercedes when you go to prison, buddy. Who's got the mink coat? You will <laughs> not have that when you go in there. And you did that because you're caring about all those people and you got a little too deep into caring and you didn't take care of yourself, buddy. And uh -huh. I say, uh -huh. you, you know, and that makes you a codependent, man, if you think about it. I hope that's constructive in your life. You know, you don't have long conversations with people like that because they got to go ahead and go to the penitentiary. But that's right in line with what you're talking about, because I think then you're dealing with that underlying vulnerability in, in that same way. It often happens that when people attend my class and they're court referred, especially with the court referred, I will emphasize very quickly that anger is one, a feeling, a perceived threat to our 
emotional well-being, our physical well-being, our resources, time, money, uh, our loved ones, but it's also a reaction to some inner pain. And mm -hmm. when I get up and show them on my whiteboard diff different wor words that describe that kind of pain, it's like their jaws are dropping and their eyes get a little water. Yeah, yeah, you're right. It's pain. But they don't want to show that very quickly. Yeah. And then I'm surprised, though. Very often by the second session, many are very open and candid about that pain. Mm -hmm. But they don't want to talk about it outside the room or go on and admit it to themselves in their daily life. It's a hard well, I think it's like playing basketball, Bernie. I don't know where you are with this, but I think it's like playing basketball because you and I are trained professionals. We could talk to each other and have a great conversation about this. No problem because we got the tools, we got the language, we got the concepts, and we have our own pain that we dealt with in terms of not knowing it and then having the awareness come to us somewhere along in our professional career. And we don't want to go that into that lack of knowledge again. We want to be out of denial ourselves. So we've got the tools. They don't have the tools. Right. They don't even know what this word codependency is. They don't have any idea about vulnerability or denial. And those words, as commonplace as they are for professionals like us, they don't have any idea. So it takes them a while. You throw the ball over to them and say, look, guys, you're going to have to dribble this ball around the court for a while and don't even think about shooting baskets. Let's pass the ball around here a little bit and relax with this because we're not trying to score here. We're trying to get comfortable with the game. And then sometimes like they'll, the pick, metaphor. They'll, they'll, pick, they'll pick it up a little bit after that. <laughs> so that's, that's very interesting. So then I would be interested also because we see a lot of people, a lot of people here are very interested in parenting and kids. How did you work with the uh, parents and children in this regard? Because it's kind of, that sounds like it's a more challenging much more complexity involved there. Much more challenging, much more complexity. Uh, I, I tell people the book didn't do well because the first chapter was directed to the parents to say, before you help your children with anger, you have to learn <laughs> strategies yeah. to own anger. Yeah, they didn't and, want to. Uh, I think many parents just wanted to say, take the book and read it. To yeah. Yeah, right. uh, I don't want to read it, you read it. Yeah. Right. But it was educating parent to be in effect the best therapist they could be with their child talking about need for validation need for understanding and labeling feelings we learn from parents how to label our feelings it was much more than the book was much more uh, cognitive focused less mindfulness talked about that talked a little bit about uh, compassion but not with the complexity of skills and and research supported skills and compassion focused therapy or mindfulness. So it was uh, an educational book focused on, did include an anger log, did include uh, helping the child through uh, just school, uh, in the school system. I guess I was a precocious child because in first and second grade, I was questioning, no one's talking about feelings. So I was <laughs> destined to be a psychologist. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I emphasize the parents, uh, try to encourage teachers to even if they're not allowed to talk about feelings with literature, have the children guess how a character was feeling. What was their motivation? Why do you think this one character did this to his friend? Just a way to become more self-reflective and, and increase the emotional intelligence. That is such a good idea. You know, I was thinking about the same thing. What I wanted to do, I don't have time for it, but uh, some friends of mine who I took mediation training years ago, probably 15, 20 years ago, and I always wanted to see mediation training start in grade school, because if you actually train kids to mediate the problems of others, they would, by default, 
start thinking about themselves in these situations. And if you gave them badges like Boy Scouts, like I'm an Eagle Scout, I'm a non-recovering Eagle Scout. I was, <laughs> I was chasing badges through most of my childhood. Okay. So then what happens is if you give them badges and things to go for in terms of like mediation epaulets, you know, that they could then become a senior colonel of mediation, whatever. I think it would be so much fun and give them the responsibility. Now, this is a particularly tough case, Johnny. We're going to ask you to mediate this thing between your two friends. I want you to hear them out and see what you think because you've done a good job so far. Let's see what you do with this one. And then everybody sits there and does the game. You know, I, I think playing that game, if they learned that in grade school, can you imagine where they'd be when they became a psychologist, you know? Right. I love that idea because I've always been uh, someone to support emotional education in early grades. And so that would be a wonderful device. It'd be so much fun because, you know, as a teacher, it would be so much fun just doing it. You know, like, okay, I'm not the expert. You're the expert. Let's get you to really know how to throw that ball around and get it in a workable way so that everybody deals with each other respectfully, that there's no... There's no sad, I'm hurt, my feelings are hurt, I can't believe I'm hurt so much. And there's no anger, disrespect over on that side. So there's no whining and fussing on either end. This is just, let's get the job done. Let's figure out where we are and where we're going to go. And then working toward a win-win situation there. <laughs> yeah, right. That's it. Yeah. It'd be so much fun because it's uh-huh. really, the balance and all that stuff is so absolutely relevant. So listen, how can people get a hold of you? Thank you so much for taking the time. Let's get people connected with you. You're on a very absolutely important mission. We were joking when we started. This is completely ubiquitous to humankind, and people need to get connected with you. Uh, By the way, just to say it one more time, Bernie has given us a book. It's going to be there on the website, on the show notes. And if you happen to drive around in your car, run over, click on it, and see if you can He's offered it as a giveaway, so that's really good. And we get over and do that. Overcoming destructive anger strategies that do work by Dr. Golden. So where would you like people to go, Dr. Golden, to connect with you? My website is angermanagementeducation.com. Okay. And the book itself is available at uh, Amazon and wherever books are sold, as they say. (laughs) Yeah, good, good. So we'll have it. We have a thing, which I'll tell you about. Uh, Stay with me when I get offline here. I'm going to tell you a way that you can have it set up for global Amazon so you can sell it globally. I'll tell you about it in just a second. And I'm going to have it as a global link on the show notes because we have probably, I don't remember, something like 15 countries that are there that what they do, it goes in the currency of the Amazon in that country. Huh. I'll tell you about that in just a second. So, and we're going to put all your books up there. We're going to get, move, move some product. You know what I'm Great. saying? Great. Sounds, <laughs> sounds good to me. <laughs> Have some fun with it. Thank you so much for coming on. This has been a very interesting conversation. We would get along well if we had a chance to hang out in Chicago together. I'll tell you that. I am so thankful for talking with you, and you're, I think you're right. exactly right. We would have a good time. <laughs> <laughs> so good. Well, we'll talk again. You have something else that's up your sleeve. Come on and tell us about it because we, lo- we would definitely be interested in it. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Cobrain Journal. We're working every day behind the scenes to bring you reports that connect research benches with those street trenches. Here we share the complexity of mind science because, as you know, details really do matter. One of the most pervasive, misunderstood challenges 
is how commonplace medications like those written for ADHD are used so regularly without clear guidelines. If you think you'd like more specifics, take a minute to download my two-page PDF packed with video links and references on the absolute essentials of how to start ADHD medications. They're easily available at corebrainjournal.com forward slash start. Thanks for listening. Do connect and stay tuned. Together we can make a difference.